Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drum, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a fucking. <laughs> Ain't a fucking. Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. Can we get straight now? No, we had a problem. And uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Next. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah. John, I'm about to... Oh, watch out. I was practicing for when I get my <laughs> remote set up together. I was going to say, man, I'm on my third cup of coffee. Don't do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> Record. What's going on, buddy? Oh, man. Just, uh, I have that week we discussed a while ago coming up. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, it will have gone past... True, true. Well, I still have it coming up as we speak. Part of that is thanks to me. Yeah, that's true. The easiest part of it. Yeah. By a long shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil's two song weekly <laughs> gig. Two songs. I'm not kidding. Jelly. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice one, and I appreciate you. Oh, hey, man, you're very welcome. Throwing it my way. Oh man, let me tell you, we need we need a little ray of sunshine midweek in our gig schedule, don't we? No doubt. Yeah, I'm I'm releasing another child to the world while <laughs> while, while you're no. Wait, wait, let me I should probably clarify that, well, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'd I'd like to make it perfectly clear. I don't need any more children. <laughs> no, Thank no, you. I just mean that I'm I'm graduating another one is all I'm saying from high school. Ah, good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I missed you last week. I know. Said children. Yeah. Kept me from participating in Mr. Bettis' fabulous interview. You did a great job. Man, let me tell you, uh, Old Devil Pride got me on that one, buddy. I was proud of that one. That was a good show. Yeah, I agree. You really had a a lot of good questions. Uh, Did somebody ever help you with those? I sh- shot it. Anyway, <laughs> I was there in spirit. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the uh, remote recording rig, once again, did not let me down, man. And and let me tell you, it's, it's very much held together by sheer will, duct tape, and chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know? But, hey, let me tell you, again, not, not to, to pat myself on the back or anything, but... You know, I listen to a fair amount of other podcasts, not just other drumming podcasts, and a lot of them do remote interviews, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we're on to something good with my ham-fisted way of recording this. Because to me, they sound, ours sound better than the others. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them have kind of that old phone interview vibe. Yeah, some of them sound like they're in a submarine, too. There's that weird kind of a flanging phase kind of a thing. That yeah, done good, kid. <laughs> yeah, done good. Oh, thank you, sir. But now, John, I would be remiss 
if I didn't bring up something right now. Unless, is there anything else you want to say about the Bettis interview or, or anything else? Because I want to launch into a small, a small point of negative contention. Oh, well, on the positive, um, I, I just loved how had no idea, you know, Matt's vibe and background and all that, but just the organic and just really kind of like earthy approach he has to life, not just symbol making. That was mm -hmm. a cool little uh, little perspective that I got from him. I, I liked it. I feel like he and I could be best friends. Yeah. It's just that little rub of him being about 300 miles from like the nearest gas station that's probably the, the biggest issue. That would certainly be a problem for me. I'm telling you, man, he is out in the middle of nowhere. But it does make for good Skype interview scenery. Well, all right. It was awesome, man. It. it was great. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Matt. Yeah, you were really awesome. really appreciate it. Uh, and so getting back to said beef, which is something that through nearly one year of podcasting, we have not had any beef. I mean, we really haven't. There really hasn't hasn't been an issue of anything come up. And you and mean on air? On air, right. yes. Now okay. I'm not talking about the literal fist fights that we've had, but I'm talking about or the bitch sessions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm talking about um, things that people will either send us or things that pop up on our social media that people have questions about or that that sort of thing and and let me go ahead and say this this is not beef with any other podcast it's not that at all it's just something that once again popped up on my social media last week it's probably at least the fourth or fifth time that it's come up and so since it's come up that many times, I do want to take just a brief minute to address it. And and I even got to the point, and John, you can attest to this, that I wrote a rather pointed letter uh, that was fired off to the uh, internet, uh, we'll call it newspaper, mm -hmm. the internet newspaper. And now, whether it gets published or not, I don't know, because I'm sure that there's probably been another 500 letters that were probably fired off as well. So let me go ahead and just tell you what this is about. For those of you who are fairly active on social media, you've probably seen something or at least had some kind of an allusion to this. Somebody's probably mentioned it. But it was an article, article that was written on The Guardian about five or six weeks ago. And the title of the article was Music Education is Now Only for the White and Wealthy. Well, the first time I saw that, I just kind of brushed it off as being, well, this is somebody who's just trying to be intentionally inflammatory. Divisive. Yeah. And all that popular stuff these days. And let me say this, John, I'm not going to discount that. I still think that a good bit of this is being intentionally inflammatory. You know, I, I would agree. Yeah. One of those things as far as like, I'm going to, I'm going to put up one of these intentionally divisive sort of headlines that if nothing else, it'll grab somebody's attention, mm -hmm. whether or not they read the article or not, right? So I saw this probably about six weeks ago, right, when it mm -hmm. came out. And so I read it, and I was, you know, I freaking kicked dirt and, you know, all this other stuff. And the first thing that came to mind after the intentionally inflammatory is this person is also being intentionally politically correct and also doing that thing I like to call it being anti-intellectual that's kind of the rage these days you it know? seems to be popular doesn't it yeah so 
this article, it's like a cat, man. It's got nine lives. It just won't go away. It just keeps coming back. Somebody will tag me in it, and it shows up on a timeline, right? What do you think about this? Somebody, you know, then it'll show up on a friend's timeline, and, and then it shows up again, you know, on mine. And so finally, I was tagged in it again last week, and I read it again, and there was an addendum to it. And it was another article that was sort of in response to that article. Mm-hmm. And in this response article, there was a mention that one of our hallmark, one of our great institutions of higher education, Harvard, has decided that they are going to not necessarily do exactly what the original article wants, but they are going to create a music degree path, a music degree program that will allow students to come in for the lack of a better term, create their own curriculum and they will not have to take music theory and they will not have to take music history, or at least they won't have to take history of Western music. Both of those, dare I say, are moderately important to getting a degree in music. (laughs) Wouldn't you think? So, anyway, I just want to address both of those articles really quickly. John, you can jump in if you like. Well, I'd like to say one thing. Go for it. It is concerning, this approach Harvard's taking, because, you know, we're, I mean, in the same breath as Berkeley and Miami and North Texas State Mm -hmm. and Indiana, the Harvard Music Program is often mentioned right well especially when you talk about from the theory aspect like the phd aspect you know there's there's several different types of music um degrees you can get especially on the higher levels Mm -hmm. right and harvard and yale and some of the ivy league schools you may not know them quite as much from a performance standpoint but when you get to the composition and the theory and the pedagogical stuff man they're way up there. Ha- having a PhD from Harvard or Yale, that ain't nothing to sniff at. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Quincy Jones said, too. Yeah. Wait, no, he didn't. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I, I just kind of need to make light of the fact that the School of Music at Harvard is not exactly, uh, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue when it comes to success in this business. So I wanted to just the only thing I can really make fun of Harvard for. I'm going to roll with it, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Now, All right there. Now I'm good. Uh, I'm going to address the, the, the first part of the uh, argument first or the first article, and mm-hmm. then we'll get to the Harvard thing separately, secondly. And by the way, let me say this. I've been to Harvard's campus a couple times. Lovely. Absolutely fantastic. It's b- brilliant. It's beautiful. I would love to have a, an advanced degree from there, but I don't. But that's not, there's no sour grapes on this. I've got, I've got plenty of degrees. So anyway, the first article was written by Charlotte Gill. And her argument is essentially that music education has become exclusive to the oppressing class, otherwise the white class of people, and to the wealthy class. She also draws the analogy that learning to read music, as in our traditional notation, is akin to learning Latin that it is a tricky, elusive language that only a few people have mastered. That in itself is totally incorrect. 
A few. Yeah, a few. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's intentionally vague. I understand that. It's intentionally vague. You can't it's really... It's a poor word choice, though. It is, yeah. And I mean, there's third graders reading music. Absolutely. Really, the tone of her article is that there should be a new method or at least new ways to teach students that are, we'll say, underprivileged, uh, to allow them to reap the same benefits that wealthier, more privileged students have. Now, one glaring omission is there. She doesn't say how that's supposed to be done. <laughs> there is a little oversight, right? So all that being said, the first point I want to take is that I encourage everyone to go read this article in The Guardian, and I think that everyone will probably come to the conclusion upon reading it that there is an underlying paternalistic tone to this article that is absolutely enraging. I cannot stand it when somebody writes a patronizing article, and especially someone who herself is in the oppressing class, wants to then tell the oppressed, I'm using my air quotes, John, mm -hmm. what's best for them. Oh, boy, how narcissistic can you be? I want, I'm in the oppressing class, but I want to tell everyone what's best for them in the oppressed class. Oh, that gets, that gets my hackles up, man. Right there. That is, you can't have it both ways, man. You cannot have it both ways. I mean, that is, how self-indulgent is that? Pretty. It's, it's incredibly self-indulgent. She also romanticizes music illiteracy. Oh, it's so romantic to not know anything, but then excel in, in this, you know, to be this oppressed person and then come out the other end and be considered a genius in that discipline. I kind of take numbers to that in that there are a number of people who are hugely successful, mm -hmm. you know, heralded as the innovators of art that, in my opinion, is second to none. But, you know, you take this, this opinion of hers and, 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 what, what are you going to just discount Duke Ellington? Yep. Or, you know, these, the beboppers that we just worship in that, you know, it's highly sophisticated theoretically approaching music and in, in their, you know, their progressions and in their chord structures and all that. And, you know, that you just, you're just kind of completely discounting everyone and they should just be a, you know, like, a Jimi Hendrix for lack of better terms. I mean, he might've read music, but I don't know. I'm just, used, you know, it's, it's just sort of like, it, it doesn't, it, it's discrediting an, an, an insane and influential, insanely large and influential group mm -hmm. of people that are in the quote unquote oppressed class that would argue to the death that their knowledge and abilities musically especially being able to notate and read and all that helped them create things that are 
now considered, you know, in my opinion, the greatest American art form known to man is jazz. No doubt. Jazz, you know, for, for everyone who played by their ear, there was probably equally, you know, the, the innovators all read music very well and were schooled and studied. And so it's just that, that kind of, that just doesn't sit well with me that, that you're going to, you can't take, you can't take that argument and then just, you know, not bring Duke Ellington into the conversation or not bring Dizzy Gillespie into the conversation. And, you know, all of these guys were highly educated musically. That, that doesn't sit well with me. The, the other thing that I don't think is, is fully realized in her argument is if you intentionally either water down or you intentionally cater certain academic disciplines to students, what you're doing is you're also robbing them or at least telling them, hey, you don't have to be investigative. You don't have to be curious. You don't have to look for this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's one of my pet peeves about kids anyway these days is it seems like there's a general lack of curiosity and spirit of investigation. Mm-hmm. When you when you bring that kind of stuff directly to students and you you're essentially robbing them of that from for a lot of students you are now there are some regardless of what you do they're going to go out and they're going to do the right thing and they're going to be curious and they're going to go hey or I'm, be just naturally gifted right naturally you know, gifted yeah yeah and and go out and learn some of this stuff on their own or at least seek out the way to do these different things that is incredibly important man mm-hmm. and when you when you coddle students and when you bring things to them on their terms a lot of times the other aspect of it of it is is yeah you do that to a 16 year old kid and they love it initially don't they oh wow it's great it's fantastic but in the long run you're doing them an incredible disservice because i can tell you right now man when i was especially in in school if i would have had uh, a teacher say you know man we've decided here that Asking drummers who their native instrument is a non-melodic, non-harmonic instrument, instead of having you guys play vibes and go through traditional improv classes and advanced improv classes, we're going to do an improv for drummers. We're going to—it's going to be on a lower level. Man, I would have jumped on that instantly. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They didn't do it. We had to go through. We had to slog through like. Every other player, like trumpet players, piano players, guitarists, woodwinds, right? But let me tell you, I look back on that, and that was absolutely the right thing to do. I draw upon that knowledge all the time. Same thing with ear training. If somebody would have said, hey, instead of you doing your advanced ear training, like all these other people that play piano and guitar, we're going to do ear training for idiots. I would have jumped on it instantly. Of course. Instantly. But it did not serve me in the long run. So, Well, I'll tell you this much. I'm a living proof of almost being led in the direction of this article. Mm-hmm. In that someone told me, man, you don't need to do all that. You just need to go out and play. And, you know, in some respects, it was cool, but... I'm limited in certain ways now because I didn't take the path of education that would give me a stronger foundation in a lot of ways, not just technique, not just, you know, 
being able to have a broader ability percussion wise, but ear training theory, I'm so limited in all that, you know, that some opportunities could, could have been created if I were a little more together with it. So there you have it. I want to finish up talking about the article regarding Harvard and what they're doing. And then I will step down off my soapbox. Okay. Okay. Now, there was a corresponding uh, letter or article that was written in response to the Gill article in The Guardian. And the title was something along the lines of The Insidious Divide in Music Education. Again, easy to find. Mm -hmm. It showed up many times on different social media. And in this article, it responds to Gill's article, but the thing that I want to talk about in this is it also references Harvard's music department has decided again that you can now create your own music degree and you do not have to take uh, music theory or history of Western music. Again, two, we'll call them moderately important subjects. Anyway, I'll... I'm going to create a school of drumming to where you don't have to play single strokes or double strokes. No, I'm yeah. going to. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Just stick to your guns and your little ideals, and I'll do my thing. So this is all I'm going to say about the Harvard thing. One, 100%, they should know better than this. Agreed. It, it, it's Again, we are romanticizing anti intellectualism is what we're doing here and here's my thought on why this is happening john i've taught i've been a part of first let me say this several different music programs as an undergraduate and as a graduate student and i have also taught on virtually every level i've taught in university levels i've taught in we'll call them music trade schools i've taught privately I've, I've been a part of all these different levels, either as a student and or as a teacher, all right? And I've encountered plenty of what we will call lifetime university people or lifetime university citizens. Professional students. <laughs> Professional students, yeah. Right. And these are the kind of people that immediately leave high school, go into college, go through undergraduate school, go through graduate school, leave graduate school, and immediately enter the university again as an employee and never leave that circle. Essentially, these are people that have never experienced what we'll call the real working world, mm -hmm. right? Let me tell you, there is a significant academic bubble that has never burst. It's very comforting, man, when you get in there, especially when you get to the tenure track level. If you get tenured, no oh my gosh, you've got to come close to being Charles Manson before you get fired when you receive tenure. And I think that is the main culprit for what's happening in Harvard right now. You have lifelong academics that have never been in the working world, have never had to fight it out and slug it out and see the real practical application of this stuff that you are learning and the ramifications of it. In other words, what it's like to actually work for someone in the real world that, ha that plays by different rules in academia. 
it's scary, isn't it, John, it, to have to do that? Yeah, it can kind of suck. Yeah, it can kind of suck. And you got to kind of adapt. Yeah, and you have to adapt. So what ends up happening is you have these academics that from the time they're 18 up until whatever age, until retirement, they don't ever have to deal with that. And about the only the only way that they can wield power and influence is to do things inside of this academic vicious cycle. And let's be honest, if you don't have a lot of good ideas, any old idea will work. Doesn't care if you hair lip the Pope, it really doesn't matter if you fly in the face of traditional proven teaching methods. Hey, sometimes the more controversial, the better, right? Mm -hmm. At least it'll get your name out there. And a lot of times in academic circles, you know, you've heard the old saying, you got to publish or perish, right? There's pretty much no better way to publish anymore than doing what we're doing right now. It's instantaneous. It's quick, right? right? And with social media, you can do the same thing. So Harvard made a fairly big splash intentionally of throwing it out there that you could do this, that you could go through and make your own degree program and not have, a, not have to deal with that pesky theory or, or music history. Man, it's academia gone bad. It's academia parodying parodying itself how's that that's that's pretty good it's infuriating it really is yeah i, I will the, you know look i've done my best to avoid the intellectual path in life clearly <laughs> <laughs> but i will say this <clears throat> who in their right mind would spend upwards of a hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever it is to go to Harvard to create something that ultimately you could just go out in the world and do, which is, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing. I, I did that. Yep. <laughs> you know, I didn't spend $75,000 a year or whatever it is that, you know, I, I didn't want to do theory. I didn't want to do it. So I didn't, I did, but I didn't spend half a million dollars trying to do it either. That, that just makes no sense to me at all. Yeah. And, you know, John, the other thing is I am all for updating antiquated or useless parts of education. Trimming the fat. Man, I'm like all math? about that. Exactly. Yeah. English. No, I think that I, I think we need to get back in on track with that but math yeah come on. i got a calculator dude yeah well absolutely so anyway the, the thing is i am all about updating antiquated systems and trimming the fat on certain things i'm all for teaching kids how to use uh digital audio workstations all the all the different things that we have to deal with in the modern world as mm -hmm. far as technology playing with loops and sequences creating this stuff production recording techniques that stuff absolutely needs to be taught but when you intentionally put forth music illiteracy to be edgy man it, it is it's complete and total chaos for the sake of chaos and and also i'm not gonna go down this rabbit hole but there are absolutely certain political implications on this 100 percent, there are and it's just, it's ridiculous, it's insidious, it's borderline malevolent. And it's just, I can't believe that the powers that be 
can't see through that or or obviously sign off on that at Harvard. I, I I would have to think that somewhere fairly soon down the road, somebody's going to come to their right mind and say, "We've we've jumped the shark here." I hope so. I'm done. All right. I'm defeated. Look. <laughs> his panties will be okay. All right. Everyone, take a deep breath. Let's get back to some drums. John, I've come to the conclusion that in the world of academia, there's just no good ideas left. There's nothing nah. creative left. You just got to just pull stuff out of thin air, whether it's right or wrong. Look, the, 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 Heralded institutions of higher learning need to just take that Montessori approach here. Just let kids be kids. Okay. Moving on. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> All right. Uh, folks, our main topic for the day. Oh, well, let's just call it our equal topic for the day. <laughs> People are looking at their watch. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. Uh, John has injured himself on this podcast Ooh. in a fury of just disdain for the academic system. That's just, that's my cat at work. Though. All right. Um, the topic we're going to discuss today is ergonomics and health. Brought to you by John. He came up with that. That's excellent, man. Rolling. Let's get back to freedom in the academia world. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is something that I've kind of learned the hard way that it's it should be foremost in your mind as drummers because we as we discussed earlier we do something that just really is horrifically inappropriate to the to the human body mm-hmm. you know repetitive things striking you know uh, the the abuse our body takes by way of of this uh this uh, path we've taken in hitting things and, and all that. You know who talked about that? Who? Mr. Matt Bettis. He, he talked did. About that's that right. Same thing. Oh, yeah, man. Like, what? You know, like, am I going to be able to swing a hammer the rest of my life? I mm-hmm. don't know. So uh, I, I was kind of, I kind of just decided to bring it up with Phil. Like, man, let's let's try to get people on the right path. I'm, I'm, it's been discussed before, but, you know, I can, I can say from my own experience, um, it's good to get, Get these things under control, especially if you can do it earlier in in life, um, and uh, it, it'll serve you well, I think. So, with that in mind, I'm going to let my point guard. Well, yeah. While John gives himself stitches over there, um, the first thing is when we think of ergonomics. You know, we think in terms a lot of times of the buzzwords of like, hey, here's an ergonomic keyboard. Here's an ergonomic chair. Well, we're going to talk about ergonomics from the standpoint of a lot of different things. We're going to talk about ergonomics from the standpoint of just the efficient way to do things in our workplace or or, or when we do work. We're going to cover things, everything from packing, loading gear to unloading, the methods of setting up, the different ergonomic aspects of your drum kit, the ergonomics of how you place yourself behind the drums and so forth. Now, first thing is when we teach and learn proper technique, we're assuming, and hopefully rightfully so, we're assuming that we're being taught 
the right technique because the right technique is going to be ergonomically compliant. So the first thing, let's go back to what we talked about, about loading, about making sure that you're doing things the right way. Now, first and foremost, the heaviest thing for most of us when we have to load stuff up is going to be a hardware bag or a hardware case. Now, we've addressed this a little bit kind of in a roundabout way a few, I guess it was maybe a month or so ago when we were talking about must-have gear and you brought up that protection racket uh, bag, hardware right. bag, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you said it's incredibly important is that you need to have your heaviest piece of gear, that bag, loaded properly to where the weight is going to be distributed in a correct way and make it ergonomically easy for you to lift and place inside of the car. John, how do you load up that bag? Um, well, I the way I do it, my bag is on top of my bass drum mm -hmm. on my cart. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I lift it, to get it on said cart, you know, I'm just really mindful of bending at my waist, using my legs. Sometimes I'll ask for someone to help me because like, there's a handle on each end. Just being really mindful of that because the reason I've had some lower back problems and part of it is attributed to years and years of debt, the weight of the world, right? <laughs> Uh, no, um, you know, late night, maybe you're kind of have a little buzz. You're young, you're invincible. You're lifting PA along with hardware cases on it and just not doing it properly. It's going to take its toll. So I've become really mindful of lifting properly, which is something I encourage everybody to really start thinking about if you're not. But, um, so to answer your question, to get it in the car, which is more difficult than getting it up on my cart because of, you know, the mm -hmm. obstacle of, you know, a trunk and what have you. Um, I lift it off of my base drum right into my car, so I'm really not picking it up from the ground. Yeah, maybe just like you're getting it about a foot off yeah. the case. So yeah. I, and I did that deliberately. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to put it on the bottom of the cart. I'm going to put it up top because the heaviest thing lifted goes right into the car, comes right off on the stage. That kind of thing, um, I learned from the uh, uncomfortable times when my lower back was just wretched. So, I, I, being mindful of these things, I think, is something that we could all really be on top of. Thinking about the least amount of resistance by way of weight and proper lifting and all that stuff. I got something for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I might be the only person that does this, but I want to throw it out there as far as a little tip on actually loading up a hardware case or a hardware bag. Something that I started doing to avoid having one end be significantly heavier to where it's you know very easy to tip over when you pick it up, either by the handle or if you just pick it up, if you muscle it by picking mm -hmm. up the entire bag. When I'm loading up a hardware bag, I will try to actually take the bases of stands and place them at both ends. In other mm -hmm. words, not have all the bases of the stands down on one end. That's the heaviest part of most stands, right? Or the, especially if you get double brace stands, right. is that. And so I'll alternate hi-hat stand, base on one end, cymbal stand, base on the other end, and just alternate those in there. And that, that will have a tendency to balance out your bag a little bit. It does, bit. and it also things lay better. Absolutely. Like you know, in your bag, you're, you're creating more space ultimately because they're 
they're not stacking up on on top of on each other as much with the all the ends at one. Uh, you know the, the the bases of the stands at one end. It, they just lay in your in your bag better. By the way, I do the exact same thing regarding the uh, cart to the car thing, and something that I do, being the psychopath that I am, is when I buy cars, I actually look for cars that have a very low lift gate. Oh yeah, and I've gotten it worked out to where my hardware bag when it's on the cart, it's actually above the lift gate. Nice. To where all I have to do is basically drag that sucker off and it goes yeah. right into the car going downward. Mine would be that way it. for sure. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, that's like, you know, some of these hatchbacks that are popular, like I I bought a car, a hatchback not too long ago, four or five years ago, that I made sure it was the one that didn't have that, you know, 10, 12 inches of yeah. wall mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. you're lifting up and over. And it makes a big difference because huge difference. You know th these things; these are things, man. You really, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but man, there's that makes a big difference in your in your potential problems physically, like that. That just that ten inches, yeah, of wall in the, in, a, in the back of a car you're battling, you know, and how inconvenient it can be. Um, the next piece of gear I want to talk about that a lot of times is the sleeper. It's the underrated physical body back wrecker is the symbol bag. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, John, that's pretty much been the only piece of gear that had, has given me problems until I learned better. Um, all too often, you see guys with the symbol backpack and what they do is they do the old gimmick where they just throw it over one shoulder. Mm, bad. That's bad. That's what got me in trouble about probably 15 years ago. Uh, and, you know, if you have four or five symbols and a stick bag, because a lot of times there's a stick bag place, mm -hmm. as we know, on a symbol bag, man, you can easily, easily be carting around, what, 40 pounds? I'd say, yeah. Yeah, something like that, 35 to 40 pounds. And if you have it distributed just on one shoulder, that is no bueno. I ended up having a little bout of tendonitis because of that. Um, and I actually remember when it happened being the idiot that I was. I just kind of in one fell swoop did one of those things where you pick up the bag and just throw it on the shoulder all at one time. And I literally felt my shoulder. Mm. I felt that little pinch, that little twinge in there and so from that moment on it had to be your right shoulder too it was of course mm -hmm. my doctor said you freaking idiot don't ever do that again ever good for him ever so yeah that, that's just a side note careful of the symbol bags guys that's that's a big one john now when you get all that stuff to the gig do you have a particular method that you use for setting up and and where i'm leading with this is do you have a way to get this stuff in position ergonomically in a quick organized way um, i do go ahead i i don't i know i know i put my hardware bag right in front of where my bass drum sits you know and they same here kind of have uh easy access all around um i don't know if i i'd say i'm like thinking ergonomically that way i do when i'm done with a gig i tear down everything i can sitting i like that i'm not bending over mm -hmm. as much and that, that, I've noticed that's helped me because 
you know, you, you stand up and you're bending over, taking stands apart and all that. I do almost everything and I lay it on the ground and then put it in the bag. A little quick thing that I do, and I think it has everything to do with how I kind of learned to, to, to get my drums in the position that make ergonomic sense for me to play, is the way that I actually do my setup is I'll bring the bass drum up first, set that up first, do the exact same thing you do with the hardware bag. I'll set it right in front of the bass drum. And then the next thing that I do is I will get my throne and bass drum pedal out, set those up and get those set correctly, mm -hmm. right? To where I'm sit, you know, at least seated in the right position. Mm -hmm. Snare drum stand will come out next. Hi-hat stand will come out next. And I will start building the set in my kind of ergonomic fashion that I know that this is the way that it's going to set up. That way, man, I would have to say that once I get the things then put up in order, mm -hmm. the amount of like moving and tweaking can be done within 30 seconds. True. That's a great, that's a great approach. Yeah. And so in other words, I just don't willy nilly get out there and all of a sudden start setting up ride cymbals first. You know, I, I make sure that, that I get bass drum, snare drum, hat, then I start kind of building around those. Mm -hmm. If I can get those things in place right off the get-go, man, I'm pretty much golden. I can pretty much get set up and be ready to roll after you know the, the cymbals go on. Cymbals go on last. And uh, be ready to go within like 30 or 40 seconds after getting things put into place. So, I don't know, that's just a little... I don't know, everybody might do that or a lot of people might do that. But that's just, that's my method that I've been doing for years. Um, I think another thing that can be um, speaking of hardware and such you know we're at the age we're in the in the uh age now where there's you know just almost infinite options and all that um but i think there's a couple of things that can really help with regard to your body and your you know your just your whole ergonomic approach playing wise is that you know every almost every stand now has memory locks Mm -hmm. I, I'm a big proponent of that in that my angles and my heights and all that are just consistent, very consistent because I'm locking things in like that. Mm -hmm. And you're not having a ride symbol that's, you know, three inches higher one night. And then, you know, this and that crash symbol that maybe is over, you know, just really locked on. Some people even do, they mark their carpet, you know, their rug. So it's just consistent every time. I think there's a lot to be said for that if you're thinking along these terms that you have that consistent thing. You figure out where everything goes, where you're not doing, you know, unnecessary movement or reach. These are things that um, that, that can be in modern day, especially, you know, helped along by way of memory locks and and markings of carpets and all that. You, you just really have, um, you're doing your body a favor when there's a consistent and well thought out setup. Um, and the, that kind of brings me into some things we've talked about in the, in the past, you and I, at least like, uh, long term, I think sometimes we don't think about our setup and how it can affect us negatively and physically. Mm -hmm. Um, I, for a period of time, I deemed it necessary to have my setup along the lines of Steve Jordan's circa David Letterman show where 
symbols were way up in the air, ride symbol. And, mm-hmm. and I look back on that now and I'm like, that, that's not really in my best interest health-wise to have done that. I think Steve Jordan realized that too, didn't Clearly, he? Clearly, yeah. But, um, you know, these, these, these unnecessary heights and angles and reaches, um, you know, even if it's for visual effect, I get it, but, man, you have to think about the damage we're doing to our body on a regular basis. And I'm talking about our limbs, our joints, all of these things, our muscles are are being taxed in a way that our body was not designed for. So if we want to do what we love doing long term, we've got to be in the mindset of preservation. And the best way to preserve your health is to be constantly thinking about the ergonomic setup and how your body is affected by it or how it's, you know, the least path of resistance in any given uh part of your your setup well if you want to be intellectually honest about the entire oh, thing oh god <laughs> of course the, the degree laden guy has to bring that up look i'm gonna bring it down to a grassroots level here all oh, I, thank you all i'm saying is this all you have to do to realize that exactly what you said is 100 percent truth take your symbol take your ride symbol Put that thing three feet above your floor, Tom, like Steve Jordan used to do, or mm-hmm. Indugu Chancellor. Or John Chalden. Yeah, or John Chalden. Play a four-minute song. Just play some eighth notes up there like that. See how your arm feels after that? Then take it and put it down to where it's 12 inches, 10 inches above your floor, Tom, and see how it feels. I think that will pretty much tell you everything you need to know if you're if you're being honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Now, if you're 23, yeah. you might want to argue for argument's sake. That's why they're not being honest. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that this is this is again, man, we're talking long term here and we're also speaking from experience, you know. I mean, We've been doing this forever, man, and our bodies are have suffered at the hand of our passion. And don't think for a minute, you know, let's 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 really give some props to the Roy Haynes and the Steve Gads of the world that yeah. are seventy plus, ninety plus, even with Roy, that are still playing. I mean, man, that's some of that's the gift of just, you know, some excellent genes and and what have you but you got to think those guys you know weren't doing extreme things to be able to continue to play at the level they're playing physically yeah and uh and that's something i think we should all look for because you know we're looking we're in we're in a period in humanity and in in the human uh time frame where we're living longer and we're also talking about a profession where a lot of people don't have retirement plans. Mm-hmm. So these things are, we should be ever mindful of. And I can't stress that enough. I keep repeating myself, but you've got to think of this big picture here. Do yourself the favor of when you're 65 and you still want to play, which you probably will, because we're driven to do this. We're put on this earth to do it. 
allow yourself that potential in taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Setup is a big part of it. Diet clearly. Yeah. You know, mindful of your health, all of that factors in, of course, but our instrument is brutal on our body. So what can we do to eliminate as much problems and pains and aches and, and that, well, it starts with our setup. And the next part of the setup that I want to talk about are the rest of the drums. The the cymbals, we've got a pretty good handle on that. Mm-hmm. The drums, I think, especially when you go around the tom-toms, a lot of times, man, I've sat in on guys' drum sets or have seen guys' drum sets, and it just they just don't make a lot of sense with the way things are set up where you have to reach for toms. You have floor toms that are way too close to your uh, you know, your right leg, your bass drum leg, mm-hmm. you know, they're not ergonomically set up. They're set almost basically straight back from the bass drum instead of having some kind of a gentle curve or angle out to the right for the, the to, to allow for the normal uh, reach of our bodies, mm-hmm. you know? So one of the things that I do and I tell all my students is when you start your setup, Okay, we've gotten to the point where we have our bass drum set up, we have our snare drum set up, and we have our hi-hat set up. And one of the things I also tell students about the hi-hat, don't have that thing too close to you. In other words, don't have your hi-hat close, don't have your hi-hat back enough close to your body to where the angle between your thigh and shin is less than 90 degrees. You want to have at a minimum a 90 degree angle there because I think there's a bit of a tendency to to want to pull that hi-hat really up close to you. Now Mm -hmm. I'm going to use a bad example here because this guy's one of the best drummers in history and one of our greatest living drummers is Bill Stewart has always had a weird tendency to want to have that hi-hat nearly up against his left side and you know it has it he has a tendency for the hi-hat to creep away from him and all kinds of other bizarre things but this is one of those cases, do as I say, not as Bill Stewart does, <laughs> right? So anyway, so we have that basic setup where we have our bass drum, snare drum, and hi-hat in a good ergonomic position. When you place your toms around you, whether it be rack toms or floor toms, you have to make sure that, one, they're not outside of your normal extended reach. In other words, you don't want to have to necessarily be reaching outside of your normal human reach. You don't want to have to reach way out and lean over to get to these drums. You've got to make sure that you place them ergonomically palatable for your body. That also has to do with the angle as well. In that episode that I did a long time ago, John, about like technique and about grips and stuff, one of the things I talked about was the angle of drums. It absolutely affects your grip and your technique. And you don't want to hamstring yourself in a particular way. Like, let me give you an example. Everybody loves Billy Cobham, right? You're a Pod, if you don't love Billy Cobham. Billy Cobham sets his drums up like timpani, right? In other words, where the toms are just almost completely flat all the way around. Mm-hmm. Well, Billy Cobham plays 95% of the time with a French timpani grip, right? To where his thumbs are on top. It makes perfect sense for him to play in that fashion when he goes around. It's just perfect ergonomic sense for him. For him. But if you've got a 26-inch bass drum and a 14-inch mounted tom-tom, you better be Shaquille O'Neal playing that set if you're going to have that tom-tom set up flat like Billy Cobham. Right. So what I'm saying is is make sure that the angle then of your drums that you're playing make ergonomic sense. Give you another graphic example. Look at uh, Keith Carlock. Mm-hmm. 
Keith Carlock, I would not teach that specific technique to my sworn enemy. But it flat out works for him to where he's playing kind of a modified, I guess you'd call it a modified French grip and to some extent a hanger grip on the right hand. And then he's playing traditional grip on the left hand. When you see the way that he's playing, it makes ergonomic sense for him to have those toms and floor toms tilted away from him almost. Mm -hmm. It just makes sense in that way. So set up your drums, set up your toms. For him. For him, correct. Because it doesn't for me. It doesn't for anyone except for him. I've had Although I've seen kids doing it now. Well, unless they are Keith Carlock, I, I, I have dubious thoughts. Yeah. Hey, speaking of angles, um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, the the throne part of it. Yeah. I, I've been, I was guilty early on of sitting really low. You like Vinny? And, yeah. Yeah. Like crazy low. And I, I paid a price for that. Um, if you're doing that, you know, I think I, I had this mindset like, oh, I'm in the kit. I'm not on top of it or something mm -hmm. dumb like that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, it's just, you're just a problem waiting to happen if you're sitting too low. Rethink that. What I did is I gradually came up slowly. It took the better part of a year yeah. to get up. So I wasn't just feeling miserably uncomfortable. It's made a lot of difference. Uh, the other thing is I see a lot of guys, sometimes they'll have a snare drum between their legs at a relatively decent angle and still trying to rim shot. So they're almost like their hand is, their their wrist is almost bent in a fashion that is not natural, but it's like, you know, it's almost like they're pushing into the drum as opposed to letting the stick drop into the drum and all that. And now there's different, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm talking some extreme, mm -hmm. you know, where you'd almost like, I'd have it set up to play into the, the head, not the rim shot, but seeing guys that are like almost pushing the stick into it. Like that. it's like, but do yourself a favor, bring that angle back up and let that stick work, you know, drop that stick on the drum as opposed to pushing it into the drum, if you will. And I, I wish you could see my hand as opposed to that, but yeah, they're almost, it's almost like you have, if you have a thumb up grip and you, you're, you're, you're then in turn pushing your wrist up, which is unnatural, and then hitting the drum, which is clearly unnatural for your body. You're you're you're, you're causing more, way more problems than you should. Oh yeah. In other words, John's not throwing the stick. No. What he what he's doing is he's basically pushing and pulling the stick. Right. Yeah. Which is that's definitely no bueno. No. So start yeah. thinking about. Not only the the angle, especially your snare drum, you're playing it all the time. The angle of it, what you want to accomplish, if you want to play rim, full on rim shots, head and rim, uh, then you want to make sure that it's clear of your legs. You know, yeah. you're not you're not you know wearing mm -hmm. your thigh out there, but or ended up having a, you know that battle, but also that you're not. Twisting and turning to get that angle of that stick into that rim shot. You know, use angles to your advantage and use the weight of the stick to your advantage. It'll help your body a lot. 
I want to say a quick thing about that throne that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I think the the general accepted method of like throne height adjustment now is that at a minimum, your throne height should allow your thighs to be parallel to the floor. Yeah, that's probably good. I generally will sit just a notch higher than that to where my thighs are actually sloping down, like my thighs slope downward toward my knee. And then the angle between my knee and my pedals, hi-hat and or bass drum, is a little greater than 90 degrees. In other words, I like for my ankle to be slightly forward of my knee. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but a little bit. In other words, I don't want to be reaching, but slightly forward to that. And then another thing, and this is this is old hat to folks who have drum tacks and whatnot, uh, but something else that you can never go wrong with, especially if you're experimenting with, with heights it, that might be a little bit um, out of the norm for you if you're experimenting with something new, take a tape measure. Take a tape measure. And once you find what you like as far as like seat height, snare height, hi-hat height, cymbal heights, do some measurements. Lock them in. Lock them in. Do some measurements. Keep a little notebook with you or put them in your tablet or your phone. And at the very worst, you can pull out the tape measure and get yourself in the ballpark. I mean, that's just that's standard mode of operation for drum tags. Right. But, I mean, it's the type of thing that you, if you're uncomfortable and then you want to try some different settings, it works great. Um, good stuff. The, the other thing I wanted to say about when we were talking about, you know, uh, weight and lifting and all that, you know, we fall victim so much to trends and marketing. Oof. And look, I have done it. I got to have those big, heavy double brace stands, like the, the monster stands of all monster stands. So nothing will fall over. I, I fell into that and I paid for it. Look, there's a lot of great hardware out now that is perfectly stable and sturdy enough to use that isn't as heavy. So maybe start thinking along these lines. If you're moving a lot of things, you know, you don't have the, the luxury of a drum track and a crew. Mm-hmm. You're doing the, the schlepping. Start thinking about minimizing that weight with quality stuff that is going to work. And Be honest with yourself about it. You know, if you don't need DW9000 stands, <laughs> I, it, let's just let's I let it go. No, I don't either. Especially yeah. now that I can't have my cymbals any higher than my, you know, <laughs> <Ankles>. waist. <laughs> yeah. John's bringing back the low boy. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you don't need yeah. it. But that, just start thinking about these things, man, and make, make life easier for yourself. John, before we leave this, we want to talk a little bit about some just pure health and nutrition concerns that, mm-hmm. that kind of play into this entire thing. And the first one that I want to talk about is, and it goes hand in hand with, you know, ergonomics and taking care of yourself is the diet and nutrition aspect. It's very important, especially when we're getting into the summer seasons. We're playing a lot of outdoor gigs, a lot of these shed gigs. Ooh. You better keep yourself hydrated and you better eat well. Yeah. And hydration, man. I want to give everybody a little tip here. And this comes straight from the doc. Now, first, let me say this this is a doc that 
was talking to me about my specific situation. So any of this so-called medical advice we're going to give you, you better take it with a grain of salt. No and the, pun intended. No pun intended because we're coming up on that. <laughs> and and absolutely consult your own doctor before you just start <laughs> self-medicating yourself like we like to do from time to time. But here's, here's the big thing that I learned from occasionally getting muscle cramps when playing outside. Of course, hydration is incredibly important. It's of paramount importance. But a lot of times, hydration is not the culprit. A lot of times, it actually can be... Actually, hydration can be the culprit from the standpoint of giving you muscle cramps. Sometimes you can drink so much water, and sometimes you can hydrate yourself to the point to where you are, are eliminating your electrolytes and your sodium. Mm-hmm. Now, you've heard people talk about it all the time, especially athletes taking salt pills. You know, my son, the hockey player, takes salt pills from time to time, right? He mm-hmm. has to from what he does. Well, when you lose electrolytes, that de facto makes you lose sodium as well. And if your body's not holding on to that, you will cramp up. And that also is a big factor. Anybody who's ever done like a low-carb diet, it causes you to expel a lot of water, when you're on those and therefore you lose a lot of sodium one of the quickest and best and cheapest ways to get yourself replenished with sodium is take a bouillon cube dissolve it in about a cup of water and I know it's not the most palatable thing but drink that cup of bouillon and live a happy cramp free life so there's your hot tip for the day Woo! Poor man's soup. <laughs> it is. It's better than castor oil. Oh. <laughs> man, what kind of a non sequitur was that, dude? I don't know. I'm just trying to think like how to how to how to get past <laughs> drinking that. You know. <laughs> I'm just, well, how did you get castor oil from? Well, you said it was not the most palatable. <laughs> Thing. I'm like, I'm trying to think of something that would be far worse. You know, That's awesome. I'm just giving some psychological tips here to get through this misery of a cup of bouillon. Yeah, it works though, man. I'm telling you, if you've ever had leg or arm cramps, or even like if you've had, if you've ever gone through that thing to where you've lost the electrolytes and, and the, the, the sodium and the, the just hydration out of your body and you get like headaches oh yeah it is astounding man what that will do it also gives you a fairly good shot of energy as well it'll perk you up in a minute when you get that sodium replenished in your body john we were also talking before uh we hit the record button that of all these guests that we've interviewed we've always asked them hey what kind of warm-up do you do before the gig you and i have never talked about that about what we do Do Uh, that's because i don't yeah, well, I was going to say the same thing, that, that I seldom warm up before a gig. About the only time that I warm up prior to a gig is, one, if I'm bored out of my mind, or two, there are times when you either get to the side of the stage or you get to the stage, uh, say, five or six minutes before everybody else, and you're just kind of waiting around to start. I always have like a little practice pad. Sometimes I'll pick up a practice pad, and I will just sit down and seems like my hands just naturally gravitate to singles and doubles. I think a lot of people would tell you that same thing. Your hands just kind of naturally gravitate to that. Maybe run through just a few other little things, run through a paradiddle or two. Sometimes sometimes I'll fall back and I'll remember some of those old traditional solos like uh, Three Camps or Crazy Army or Rolling in Rhythm that I've played 7,000 times and just roll through one of those. 
you know, for a minute. But that's about the extent. Yeah. My my warm up usually is I look at the first song and if it's not over about one ten, I'm like, oh there, I'll warm up on that song. <laughs> I'm just being being real keeping it real, bro. I like it, man. Hey, it's how sweet it is. I can skate through that. There you go. Let's go. Warm up. Okay. And then last thing, I just want, I wanted to touch on ear protection. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're talking about health considerations, I mean, your hearing, that's, that's absolutely 100% as valid as taking care of your back, shoulders, knees, and ankles, right? Yeah. Especially if you're in a relationship. You blow your ears out and you can't hear anything. It annoys her or him. By the way, John, don't think that I'm going to let that yawn slip past, man, that you were yawning during my point. I'm I'm guessing you'll like go back and edit it where it's (laughs) as loud as it can possibly be. (laughs) So, yeah, make sure you you wear ear protection, guys. I mean, I think a lot of folks, especially when we're doing higher volume gigs now, John and I in particular, we always use in-ear monitors. I mean, it's it is arguably one of the greatest inventions over the last 25 years. I love them. Don't go anywhere without them. No, sir. John, I feel good about it. Our dual topic day. Awesome. Maybe triple topic day. <laughs> <laughs> Who's yeah. counting? Yeah. Um, let's finish it off. Let's talk about uh, our segment for the day, which is must have gear. Here we are. You want to go first? You want me to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Do it. I mentioned I bought a nice, expensive bass drum pedal. Hopefully, it's not too heavy. Ago. No, it's okay. Sorry, go right. Ahead. I used I usurped your segment. Go right. And ahead. Uh, the bag that it came with was not particularly sturdy and great. Mm-hmm. And with said investment, I decided to buy a really well-made pedal bag. And it's kept that thing in just the most perfect condition. It's it's a worthwhile twenty five or thirty dollars spent or a you know, two hundred and fifty dollar investment that mm-hmm. I, I can't say enough because I put my pedal in my hardware bag, have enough room to do that. And um it's just something that I, I just realized I I'm really glad I I bought because the bag that the pedal came with ended up falling apart, essentially. And I just ended up buying a really nice one. And that is something I encourage you to do. Who's the maker? The Of the pedal? Bag. Oh, the bag. Actually, it's a Tama bag I got really cheap at Guitar Center one day. Uh-huh. But it's made. like It's kind of this triangular-looking bag. I know that just, bag. It's made yeah. incredibly uh-huh. well. Um, but there are some other ones. Protection Racket and a number of companies have a re- really really well-made pedal bag not just the thin one of the company of the pedal i bought john i think that you are actually speaking directly toward me whenever you said that because if you recall about a week and a half ago we were talking on the phone and during that conversation i had my pedal basically exploded apart on the table like an eighth grade science project because it was so jacked up from yeah. being in my hardware bag without a case man it's, around it's, it oh it my takes, god it takes its toll for sure man my pedal and and to speak to john's point my pedal 
I, I, it, there was so much going on with it. There was so much wrong with it that I had to pull up online an exploded diagram of the pedal mm. and pull that thing apart and almost kind of reconstruct it again. There were so many things that were wrong. Some parts need to be replaced on it. And, and it's about 95% back to where, <laughs> to where I wanted it, but it's still not 100% back. And, you know, if I had done what you have been doing, put that pedal in a dedicated bag to where it doesn't just get jostled around willy-nilly inside of a hardware bag, mm -hmm. a well-balanced hardware bag, though, might I admit. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I may not be going through the pains that I am at that point. So point, yeah. a point and well taken. And and I want to stress, it's a really well made, well padded bag. Yeah. Now there's there's some that are pretty flimsy out there. Um, it's it's a worthwhile investment to get one that's really, really well made. I'll tell you what I'm going with today. Mm -hmm. I'm going with the pearl black rubber hi hat washers. Boy, I talk about minutia. And talk about ultra cheap. I think those things cost about $3. Mm -hmm. And the way that I came upon finding my affinity for these uh, was I acquired a pearl hi-hat stand that came, the clutch that came with it had those on there. And I didn't realize how good those were until I went back to an older stand that I had that was with another kit and realized how warped and misshapen and compressed the felt washers were on the other clutch from the other stand. And I could never get my hi-hats to kind of behave and stay level enough or flat enough to where they would seat on top of each other properly. I was mm -hmm. constantly spinning them to try to get them in the right condition. So... I would encourage everybody, if you're having issues with compressed felt or just warped, misshapen, worn-out felt on your hi-hat clutch, go out and buy you a few pairs of these little pearl rubber hi-hat washers and live a happy life, man. And, and let me tell you, I believe that those rubber washers that I've had on that first, that original hi-hat stand... Those things are in the neighborhood of about six years old, and I can't tell any difference. I can't tell that they've dry rotted. I can't tell if there's been any compression on them or any warping on them. They seem to be holding up really, really well, and I like them. Good news. They also make a, a cup washer underneath the hi-hat, the rubber. It's got the indentations on it, so it sits like along the yeah. curve of the symbol. It's the in. I, it's on that one stand, on that stand in yeah. particular that I You can I buy those as well. Those are nice. Those are nice, man. Yeah. We don't have the felt that kind of gets, again, misshapen or compressed underneath that. Right. Those guys have such good ideas over in Japan. They do. I'm telling you. Always John, is it thinking. too early for me to say it's my favorite show? No, it's never too early. <laughs> I, I got the, I got you the bitch at the beginning. <laughs> at the beginning of the show. And just say, this will be my favorite show. Yeah, but I had beef at the beginning. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I like beef. Yeah. I do too, Good man. Midwestern boy that I am. Medium. I'm kind of like in medium, medium rare mode. Yeah, that worked. Well, John, before we sign off, let's talk about a couple things that seem like it's becoming all, really all too frequent mm. when we end our shows. And one is we've got to mention that we lost another drumming great that has been mentioned on the show several times in several different capacities. Uh, we recently lost 
the great Philadelphia drummer Mickey Roker. Sad news. Yeah, he was he was an elderly gent. Uh, we talked about him a fair amount during the John Roberts uh, interview because, of course, John's original from Philadelphia, and that's where Mickey uh, was from and played a good bit. I actually saw him uh, play at the Ortlieb's Jazz House back in the 90s uh, nice. up in Philly. Yeah, and then also, John, just as a side note, uh, there were several episodes uh, that we played as outro music. Um, uh, it was Mickey playing on Horace Silver's In Pursuit of the 27th Man. Right. Just, oh my gosh, he's killing on that record. Really great playing. Yeah. That guy is a hard swinging dude. Another one of my favorites, which is actually playing underneath us as we speak right now, is his work on Herbie Hancock's Speak Like a Child. Mm-hmm. He, it, it's, it's one of Herbie's more heady explorations, in particular when we're talking about orchestrations and composition. Uh, and Mickey sounds like a million bucks, man, on that record. So great, man. So you could use him. You could almost take him as an underrated player. Hundred percent. Really a great. I've, I can't remember the first time I saw him play. Blanking on it, but it blew my mind. So yeah, R.I.P. Mickey Roker. Yes, sir. Yeah. And then, John, did you also want to talk about what happened in England? Oh, speaking about all too familiar, um, terrorist attack at the concert in Manchester the other uh, the other night. It was last night, actually, and as we speak. But um, you know, just going out to the victims and the people, you know, that were working that show. I know it really affects the musicians and the crew and the staff of the venue and all that and we certainly have our thoughts and prayers going out to you and I guess the best piece of advice I could give is we can't let that beat us we just gotta stay the course people need music people need entertainment people need escape and I encourage everybody to not live in fear of that, but to rise above it and keep giving what we can to a, a world where we have peace and happiness and all that good stuff. Um, I mean that. I mean that. That's We can't be beaten by this crap. Well said, sir. Thank you. Well said. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today. As usual, we love the open forum of the show, so stay in touch with us. You can email us at our Gmail account, drummersweeklygroovecast at gmail.com. You can interact with us on social media, facebook.com forward slash dwgroovecast. And for those folks who like 140 characters or less, tweet us. Reach out to us on Twitter. We are at dwgroovecast or twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast. New shows come out every Monday. We're available on iTunes, Google Play Podcast, Stitcher, Podbean, all your favorite podcast apps. Make sure you subscribe today. And last but not least, we plead, we implore you, the next time you're inside of iTunes, please swing by the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast podcast page inside of iTunes and leave us a brief written review. It would help us. It makes us happy when we look on there and we see all those nice reviews. We greatly appreciate it. All right. On behalf of John Chalden, we will see you next Monday with another brand new episode. See you later. Bye-bye. Peace.